Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Stephanie Fabian, a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, the Penny and Bill George Director of the Mayo Clinic Center for Women's Health, and the Medical Director of the North American Menopause Society about hormone therapy for menopause symptoms. We also want to let our listeners know that we are undergoing some strategic changes to improve our listener experience and streamline our processes. We'll no longer be offering our traditional show notes and we'll instead include takeaways, resources, and transcripts directly on our website. However, we would still love and appreciate your support and you can find ways to support us by going to our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com and clicking the support us tab. And my little guy also wants you to support us. Also, if you missed our big news, nurses can now earn CE for listening to the WCH podcast. Just check out mycehq.com or download the CEHQ app, or you can visit our website to learn more. So hi, Dr. Fabian. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. The first question we always ask our guests is if you can share with our listeners some details about your background. Sure. And thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here today. So I am an internist, which may be a little bit unusual in terms of caring for women in midlife and being a hormone person. But I'm an internist. I've practiced women's health since about 2005, have great interest in, in terms of research on menopause, hormone therapy, the effects of aging, and the relationship to hormones. And then sexual health is another area of interest and expertise. I am the chair of medicine at, for the Department of Medicine at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and have been in that role for a couple of years. So that's also been very fun and challenging. So the other question we always ask all of our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? I got into women's health. The results of the Women's Health Initiative study um, were published. And, and what I found is a lot of my patients just weren't able to get the information that they needed and uh, weren't able to get hormone therapy in general. And so uh, what spurred my interest is really started with that, but then grew into, it's such a, an interesting field to try to figure out, you know, some of the research questions around hormone therapy, the risks, the benefits, who should have it, what is it good for, uh, what does the loss of estrogen mean uh, for women around midlife? And so it was, the topic is fascinating, but it's also so incredibly rewarding to work with patients who are in that transition phase. It's interesting, it's stimulating, and I love my patients. That's why I'm in it. I always love the response to that question. So like we said, today we're going to talk about hormone therapy for menopause symptoms. So let's jump right in. Can you start out by explaining to our listeners what is the North American Menopause Society or NAMS 
or NAMS, and what are the goals of NAMS? Well, so NAMS is the North American Menopause Society, and our, our mission is to promote the health and quality of life of all women during midlife and beyond through an understanding of menopause and healthy aging. And our vision is really to serve as the definitive, independent, and evidence-based resource on midlife women's health, menopause, and healthy aging for healthcare professionals, researchers, the media, and the public. So one of our primary areas of focus is making sure that healthcare professionals have the information that they need to be able to care for women in midlife um, using evidence-based information. So what are the gaps that you feel exist in menopause and symptom management? Well, I, I think one of the biggest gaps right now is that women just aren't getting treated. So after publication of the Women's Health Initiative trial results in 2002, the use of menopausal hormone therapy plummeted significantly from about 40% of postmenopausal women using it to about 4%. So by orders of magnitude uh, decreased, and it really hasn't changed substantially in the years since then, despite the fact that we have a better understanding in those subsequent years about the risk-benefit profile uh, related to hormone therapy use in women. And specifically, we've come to find out that the benefits typically outweigh the risks for the majority of women who are within 10 years of menopause onset and are in their 50s. So, so most women actually are candidates for hormone therapy, but women are still suffering with a lot of symptoms. And not to say that all women need to be on hormone therapy, they don't, or that there aren't other options out there, but women are undertreated. During our phone conversation, you had shared that there's this movement from calling it hormone replacement therapy to just hormone therapy. Can you share more about this movement and why it is happening? Yes. Yeah, so in general, we don't call it replacement because we're not actually trying to replace what the ovaries used to make. Uh, we are just trying to treat symptoms. So the concept that we're trying to give back everything that those ovaries used to make is inaccurate. So the term replacement would only be really used in the case of, for example, a woman who had both ovaries removed in her 30s or a non-cancerous condition. We hope that doesn't happen very much anymore, but when it does, we would be trying to replace what the ovaries made at that point because that woman would have had uh, normal ovarian function up until the, about the age of 52. So in that scenario, we would call it replacement, but for a 50-year-old or a 55-year-old who has been through menopause, we're not trying to replace what her ovaries were, were giving her. So NAMS recently released a new position statement on hormone therapy, which we will be sure to include the link for on our webpage. Can you share with us what fueled the updated position and what changes were made from the 2017 position statement? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, the last one was published in 2017, and so it needed to be updated. It was five years old. And so no substantial changes in the overall recommendations were made, but there were new data added where appropriate. So we're starting to learn a little bit more about some of the nuanced aspects of hormone therapy. And we updated all of the sections, actually, we sort of started over. The overall recommendations haven't changed, though. So again, as I stated before, for the majority of women who are within 10 years of menopause onset and under the age of 60 and are having bothersome symptoms, the benefits outweigh the risks. Thank you. So in the position statement, it says, quote, personalization with shared decision making remains key 
with periodic reevaluation to determine an individual woman's benefit risk profile, end quote. Can you share with our listeners how they can frame or ask questions to personalize and create shared decision-making around hormone therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is absolutely key. And you know, what I do in the office when I see patients and we have discussions about hormone therapy, it really comes down to, you know, what symptoms are they having? What are they trying to fix? You know, so what problem are we trying to treat here? What's the patient's knowledge about this? What is her understanding of risks and benefits? What is her family history? What is her personal medical history? Are there any reasons that she absolutely could not take hormone therapy? And then uh, a detailed discussion about risks and benefits in her particular situation. So taking into account whether high blood pressure or a history of blood clots or, you know, a family history of breast cancer, et cetera, all of those things need to factor into the discussion, as well as what we know about, you know, what hormone therapy going to do for me in terms of symptoms, very effective in terms of symptoms. What will it do for my bone? It will absolutely protect bones while you're on it. You know, the other big ones are what are the heart risks in my particular situation? What are the breast cancer risks in my particular situation? And what do we know about brain health as it relates to hormones? And so all of that is a tailored discussion based on the patient's history, family history, and, you know, understanding where she is in terms of her knowledge about hormone therapy. So as you're talking through all those topics, especially the risk and benefit, the personalization of it, where can clinicians go to understand their patients' risk and benefit, if that makes sense? Well, that's what the hormone therapy position statement is for. It's really uh, to help people understand what the risks and benefits of hormone therapy are. And, you know, putting that in the context of your patient in front of you is more nuanced than that because, you know, there's all shades of gray in there, uh, you know, a little bit of breast cancer risk, but not a lot. And so there's no black and white in decision-making. And that's the art of medicine is where you really get into what's bothering the patient, whether the risks and benefits, and this is true with any decision-making regarding medicine, right? So it's an informed discussion about, you know, what is this going to do for you and what are the risks? So in our clinical experience, as in Nicole and mine, we have found that some providers are really reluctant to prescribe hormone therapy. So why do you feel that is the case overall? And what advice do you have for those reluctant providers? Well, I think typically when I see a provider who's reluctant to prescribe it, I think it's lack of comfort and understanding about hormone therapy. So for the most part, that stems from just unfamiliarity with it and how to use it. And so that's what NAM aims to do is really to help providers, you know, better understand what the options are and how to use them. But I do think the results of the Women's Health Initiative study that were published back in 2002 you know, colored people's view of hormone therapy. And that's despite, you know, multiple publications after that subsequent years that went on to better define the population that we were talking about. So the initial results were reported as one group of 50 to 79 year olds and did not distinguish based on age or decade of life. And so when we had a better understanding of the specific risks related to women in their 50s versus 60s versus 70s, it became much more clear. But I think providers at that time had already stopped listening. And the message really didn't get out there very well that 
clarified the issue. So I think we had a provider education issue as well. So I want to circle back to where we were talking about risk benefit and talking with patients, we have an episode where we talk about health literacy and numeracy. And I'm just wondering if you have found any way of framing those conversations around numbers, like what is your risk of this that has worked well in your practice? Yes, for sure. So especially with regard to breast cancer risk, we use that. And it's you know, less than one in 1,000 women will develop breast cancer after about five years of therapy related to hormone therapy specifically. And when you look at the big picture, about three in a 1,000 women will develop breast cancer anyway, and it takes it to just under per 1,000. The risk is small. And if you equate it to some lifestyle things, it's somewhere between the risk of one and two glasses of wine daily. It's about the same as being inactive. It's about the same as being overweight or obese. So so there are a lot of, you know, putting it in the context of what people do in their normal lives sometimes help people understand the numbers a little bit better, but absolute risk is low. So what communication tips do you have for clinicians so that patients do not feel like their symptoms of menopause are being dismissed or minimized? So I think this is just like any other issue in medicine. When you talk about communication, it's listening to your patient and menopause discussions are no different. Uh, so. I think first understanding that the burden of menopause symptoms can be quite significant and that we are having a better understanding about how these symptoms actually affect women in terms of their daily activities, their ability to work, their relationships, etc. And it's not unsubstantial. So these symptoms have consequences. And we used to sort of pat women on the head and tell them that their symptoms would last a year or two and then be gone. But we know that's not true. And the mean duration of menopause symptoms is seven to nine years for hot flashes. And about a third of women will hot flash moderately to severely for a decade or more. So it's important to understand that the burden may be significant and the symptoms may not be short in duration. In fact, they probably won't be. So Toughing it out is probably not the best option for most women uh, who have significant symptoms. And just, you know, putting that in context with your patient, I think understanding that she wouldn't be in your office if fanning herself and toughing it out were working. So I think if she's there to talk to you about it, then it's a significant problem and it needs to be dealt with. Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. I've actually had some friends recently who are struggling with symptoms of menopause and they've been to multiple providers and are basically getting told, welcome to menopause, honey. And that's it. I hate to hear that. It makes me so sad because again, honestly, if that woman is in your office, she's already had it, right? So the symptoms are already bothersome enough to go see you as a provider. So understand that there are treatment options available and very safe and effective ones. So we can do something about these symptoms and we need to help women. Which is then always followed up. I live in a rural area, so your access to, you know, more specialized can be difficult. So that's also been a conversation I've been having with my friends is, you know, where do you go and how far are you willing to travel? Yeah, it's a little bit of a wake up call. Someone who has not gone through that yet. When you say that seven to nine years, it's like, oh, great. (laughs) And the bottom line is, if you're a patient and your provider is dismissing any of your symptoms, menopause or not, you should probably find another provider, right? Exactly. And hope that, yeah, I mean, I would seek out a provider who wouldn't dismiss it, but I would hate to have to experience that as a patient. 
Well, and that's where the North American Menopause Society comes in too. So we have a locate a provider tab on menopause.org where you can find a practitioner in your local area uh, who is certified by the North American Menopause Society as having some knowledge of menopause. So providers actually have to take a test to prove that they have the knowledge to be able to deal with these issues. Can you actually share a little bit more about that for our listeners who may be interested in that certification? What does that look like? Yeah, that would be great to share. It's a certification exam, and it's based on general knowledge about menopause. And we have multiple resources, including a menopause practice guide that helps practitioners sort of understand the content that they need to master to be able to pass that test. But attending our annual meeting and getting CME credits, we have a Menopause 101 course that we have every year at the meeting now. It's been so successful because it really helps people sort of jump into this space who haven't been there before. So it's very helpful. It's also something that can be done online. So those sessions are recorded and available. So if if practitioners are interested in getting into this field, it's an incredibly rewarding field. We do offer the certification and we do offer some of the knowledge-based educational activities that would be needed to pass the test. And is this good for nurse practitioners, PAs, and physicians? Yes. uh, Pharmacists, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, anybody can take the test who is a medical professional. We have uh, some listeners, for sure, who we've noticed are not clinicians or more of the patient side. What would you like to share with these folks who may be considering hormone therapy to help manage symptoms of menopause? If you're a patient, and all of us are, some right? So I think understanding, you know, are your symptoms menopause-based is probably the first one. And a lot of women, I think, have symptoms that they don't recognize as being related to menopause. So just, you know, understanding that the gamut can be anywhere from sleep disturbance to mood uh, disturbances, which are quite common, palpitations, anxiety symptoms, sleep disturbances, the common hot flashes, which everybody knows about, also vaginal dryness, pain with sex, urinary frequency and urgency. So there's so many symptoms that actually relate to menopause. And then how much are they bothering you? And, you know, examine your family history and then seek out a practitioner who knows something about menopause management. And again, it's not all about hormone therapy, but hormone therapy is probably the most effective treatment that we have for all of the gamut of symptoms. But, you know, for example, if someone's just having a little bit of vaginal dryness, maybe a lubricant is enough to take care of those symptoms. And so there are many management options that don't necessarily mean that women have to take hormone therapy. But then again, you know, the majority of women are probably candidates for hormone therapy if their symptoms bother them significantly. I'm just curious, in your clinical experience, what symptoms have folks been coming in with, they're not necessarily connecting to menopause and are seeking, thinking it's something else. I think a lot of the mood symptoms people don't really recognize as being hormonally driven. And, you know, the the key to some of those is that you might have had a pattern of hormonally related mood issues in the past, like premenstrual syndrome, mood problems, or postpartum baby blues or postpartum depression, or, you know, things like that to where it's really triggered by falling estrogen levels. And so 
I, I think mood is one of the bigger ones that people don't recognize. Joint aches are one of the more common symptoms of menopause that we're starting to recognize. Uh, not that I would recommend hormone therapy for every woman who has a joint ache, but it's one of those that a lot of women don't really tie in. Palpitations is another one. I see women who get cardiac workups and uh, probably appropriately so, but then their symptoms resolve as we treat their menopause symptoms. So uh, yeah, there's some that are a little more uh, obscure in terms of being known as classic menopause symptoms. Well, and I think that's good to know for our listeners as well, who are clinicians who might be seeing these things and may not be connecting it themselves either. Exactly. I see actually a lot of women diagnosed with fibromyalgia at around this time because they're coming in with sleep disturbance, a lot of fatigue, and they have joint aches that aren't explained by a rheumatologic condition or arthritis. And so it's, you know, actually the menopause symptoms can overlap a lot with those symptoms. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I have noticed that seems to be a common age when men get diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Yeah, I have a suspicion that many of those symptoms may just be related to menopause. Like brain fog, I feel like. <laughs> brain fog, exactly. Would you mind talking, I know this is probably in your position statement, or it is in your position statement, but for maybe women who decide that hormones are not right for them, and, you know, some of these symptoms like hot flashes or mood disturbances, what other go-tos can providers recommend for some of these things? Well, again, it depends on the symptoms. So if it's a vaginal dryness symptom, we certainly have lubricants and moisturizers, but also low-dose vaginal estrogen therapy is very safe and effective and is has minimal absorption if that's the only symptom. Uh, for hot flashes, the antidepressants have some data to support their use. Also, oxybutynin is an old bladder drug that has some data to support it. Also, gabapentin is another one that has some data to support it. But, you know, for those, I always try to have people do, you know, ask the question, can this drug do double duty? And what other, can you get a twofer for it, in other words? And so for those women who have a mood disturbance and hot flashes, maybe an antidepressant would be a good option for women who have migraine headaches or trouble sleeping, gabapentin might be a good option because the side effect is sleepiness. So you can dose it at night. Or for example, the oxybutynin, women have overactive bladder symptoms and also hot flashes. Sometimes that can be a good option. So try to get a twofer out of, out of those other drugs and, you know, really kind of tailor the use to whatever the patient's primary symptom is. So can you tell our listeners a uh, you know, where they can learn more about NAMS and hormone therapy. What are some good resources for them? So menopause.org is the North American Menopause Society website. It has great resources on there. We're actually in the process of updating our website now and has also good resources for providers, including uh, meno notes, which are available to members uh, to download for their patients, but their patient information sheets on explaining the risk of hormone therapy. We also have one on genitourinary syndrome of menopause, and there's another on osteoporosis coming out soon. So uh, lots of good patient uh, resources. We also have our position statement, which gives all the information on the risks and benefits for providers so they can better explain it. And then our annual meeting really is a great resource for learning more about the field in general, and especially the Menopause 101 uh, session, which is on the first day of our meeting. And we are always welcoming uh, new practitioners who want to learn more about what we do. 
but we have a lot of good patient resources too. And for our listeners who want to check out the North American Menopause Society and learn more about hormone therapy, you can actually still register for that. It is The conference is Wednesday, October 12th through Saturday, October 15th, and that is at the Hyatt Regency in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can certainly learn more about registering for the conference at their website, www.menopause.org. Have you noticed uh, like a trend of more practitioners being interested in menopause and hormone therapy than traditionally? I want to say I hope so. I know our NAMS membership is increasing this year and it's higher than it's ever been. So that's really exciting to see. And uh, we would, of course, like to grow our membership and open it up to new people and you know, the younger generation with fresh ideas, it would be really great to see an influx of, of new providers who are willing to learn this and take it on because I think this field is growing. And I think what we're learning about in the field is continues to grow. And it's just a really exciting time. And menopause is becoming more of a, a topic uh, in the public domain now, which is great to see. Uh, and I think women who are suffering are just more willing to discuss it and are seeking answers. So I think the drive for or the need for menopause practitioners has never been greater and will continue to increase because we do have an aging population and there are more women entering menopause every day than there ever has been in the past. I don't know if you'd call it a weird thing with this is that anyone with a uterus goes through menopause and yet here we are you know, still not really talking about our, the symptoms of it and managing it publicly and, you know, like, oh, it's this growing area, which it should be. But funny that always should have been, right? <laughs> this is a conversation we should have always been having. A hundred percent. And you are speaking to my passion here. So yeah, I, and I usually start a lot of my articles with this is a ubiquitous experience for a hundred percent of women are going to go through it if they're lucky to live long enough, right? So it's not like it's an odd thing that happens to just a few people. And now the global population, you know, there's more women than men. So it happens to a lot of people. And we need to be prepared to deal with it. And it's in all populations, including people who may not identify as women, as you were sort of alluding to. And we need to understand what that looks like and how do we manage it. There's a definite need. And I don't think we will ever have enough practitioners to take care of this problem. But so I would welcome anybody who wants to get into this field. I'm happy to, to discuss how to do that with them. Yeah. And I like to say everybody suffers. If the woman or the matriarch is suffering, everyone suffers, right? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yes. And, you know, women are the healthcare drivers for their families, too. And so, you know, it's important to understand when women aren't doing well, as you said, everybody suffers. The economy suffers. The whole global economy suffers because if women aren't doing well and if they're leaving the workforce for menopause symptoms. I'm just curious, now you're kind of like piquing my interest in education of clinicians of all sorts. Is this not really something necessarily included? You know, we have PhDs, so it's a little different than being on a clinical track. So we've kind of missed all that. Is this something that is not necessarily included and you have to seek out additional experience? Or is there a movement towards adding this into everybody's curriculum? Can you speak to that? 
I wish that were true, but there's been a movement to move it out of the curriculum because the curriculum curriculi are just too full. So in general, and we did a study on this and published it in 2018, menopause education for residents of any type is somewhere in the range of one to two hours for internal medicine, family medicine, and gynecology. So most residents do not receive much of any menopause education, and uh, the majority are coming out of their programs feeling underprepared to manage menopause symptoms. So I wish I could tell you the reverse was true, but in general, these programs are so full with what they have to cover that menopause has gotten dropped for the most part. Dr. Fabian, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? No, I'd just like to thank both of you for bringing this topic up today and allowing the discussion. I think it's been a wonderful discussion. And for your listeners, again, menopause.org, the North American Menopause Society is here as a resource for you. And we would love to have you join us and uh, would love to have you be part of our community. So thanks again for having Thank you. Yes, thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. <laughs>